Oh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Teach us, O oh Lord, the way of walking in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. Make us like a man planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sit, take your seats. Please turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. We'll read from verses 13, actually verse 16 down to verse 26. My apologies to those who take notes and take note of the, the uh, title each week. I've been turning in my title too early. Once again, if I could retitle this sermon, it would not be How to Grow. That'll be next week's sermon. <laughs> this week's sermon perhaps would be better titled something like uh, The What, the How, and the What of the Spirit. The What, How, and What of the Spirit. So let's pick up Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. Paul explains, But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Perhaps it's a good place to start with the question, um, does it make any difference being a Christian, like t today? Or is your Christianity thought of, of something more like fire insurance, something in the future you might need if things go bad for you? Or might we think of our Christianity as perhaps something like uh, a get-out-of-hell-free card for all eternity, something that's nice to have but not a huge part of my day-to-day -day life. What, what difference does it make being a Christian now, today? Indeed, Galatians 5, 16 and following, I think, gives us a helpful answer. Remember, as we turn to verses 22 and 23, where we'll, where we'll focus this evening, that really since all the way back up in chapter 5, verse 13, this whole section, Paul has been answering his critics who have been asking this question, well, if your works don't count for justification, why would Christians work? Since Christians, you're saying, are justified by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, you know, why work? And he's been answering this question, and he's basically said, Christians work because they can't help it. Christians uh, will do good things, will produce fruit, will live lives of love and righteousness because it's in their very nature. Paul says, verse 16, 
walk by the Spirit. And in turning to this idea of the Spirit and what it means to walk by the Spirit, not only is Paul answering that first question he begins addressing up in verse 13, but he also begins to set forward a, a, what we might call a, a Christian psychological framework, an explanation for why you do what you do, how things work on the inside as a Christian, not through the id or ego or superego or some other kind of psychology, but uh, the soul and the flesh and the spirit that are at war with each other at all times with contrary desires. Last week we discussed the what, how, and what, what it is, how it works, and what it produces of the flesh, that fallen nature. This week we'll discuss the spirit, the how, or the what it is, how it works, and what it works or what it grows, especially in verses 22 and 23. Uh, it's, it's important every time we're given a summary statement in a section to refer to it. Uh, this section, really the, the summary I think is in verse 25. That is the main point of the whole section we can't miss because he tells us. So verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's the goal. He wants you to be motivated to live by the Spirit. And you can't be motivated to live by the Spirit unless we have a good, clear understanding of <clears throat> what it is, how it works, and what it produces. We ought to be motivated by the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> and as we do that, we'll see uh, this larger question we started with, why it's so important for, important for you today in this life, not just as fire insurance for some future day. So the first question we have to address as we get to all these goals we set before ourselves, what it is. And we said this last week, um, that the flesh is the de facto, fallen, selfward part of the heart, the heart being the desire factory. Uh, the flesh is that part of me that desires things for me. And the Spirit, in contrast, will say is the intended, redeemed, eternal, Godward part of the heart, those desires that are for Him and for His glory. And these two things stand in contrast. That is, first, we were always intended to live a Godward life. Adam and Eve in the garden are meant to be walking with Him in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve made in the image of God, made for our, uh, a reciprocal relationship of reflecting His glory, being the image of who He is. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. From the very beginning, intended that we might have a God-shaped chasm in our soul, a chasm which we try to fill with all kinds of things. A chasm in our soul we try to fill with entertainment or drugs or alcohol or whatever uh, other uh, kind of success or perhaps sex, the, the thing that would, would fill the, 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 the hunger and thirst I have for something that lasts, something existentially satisfying, we might say. This is why Jesus says, he who comes to me shall never thirst. He is himself God. So not only, we might say, are we intended for uh, the, 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 we pretended uh, for a, a Godward life, but we're also redeemed unto a Godward life. That is, those who trust in Christ, who are Christians, who are redeemed, can't simply add Christ to their trophy case of 
gods that they might choose to serve one day or another. He simply can't be one among many. Jesus says as clearly as possible, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, Luke 14, 26 says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says he will have no rivals. Jesus is, of course, uh, the incarnate Old Testament God whose number one rule, his first commandment, have no other gods before me. You see, we are not only intended, but redeemed unto a Godward heart, a heart that wants God in His glory, that worships Him above all things. This is the, the way of the Spirit. Spirit is that motivational force in your chest that is Godward. It's what you were intended from the beginning, what you were redeemed unto by Christ. And number three, it's what will last forever. That is, it's eternal. That's what Paul alludes to in verse 17. He says, the flesh keeps you from doing the things that you want to do, the real you, the born-again you. See, Christians do value authenticity. Here is a great Christian call to be your true self. That is who you will be into eternity, not in the way the world would have you decide for yourself who your authentic self is, guided by whatever feeling you might have on the day, but that intended, redeemed, eternally lasting, Godward self as it stands in our chest. The Spirit is that part of our Christian psychological framework Intended, redeemed, eternal, Godward setting, operational system of the heart. It's what makes us want to do what is right. It's what makes us love and celebrate and defend what is true. It's what happens to us and in, in us when God is on the throne in our hearts and we see Him enthroned over all creation. That is worship. That's what the Spirit is. Godward heart as intended, redeemed, eternally so. But Second question, how does it work? How does the Spirit work within us? How does the Holy Spirit, notice that it is a capitalized S in these verses, um, the third person of the Trinity, become in a way commingled in my spirit so that it becomes a part of my psychological framework as it is? And of course, theologically speaking, we covered this a few weeks ago. We said that the moment we first believe we are united to Christ. That's the most fundamental way of speaking about being a Christian spiritually. To be a Christian spiritually is to be found in Christ, counted in Him. Now, how is Him and His benefits, who He is, how are we connected to Him? Well, we would say we're connected to Him by believing, by faith. If we were to ask further, where does that faith come from? We'd say it's a sovereign act of God by the power of His Holy Spirit. We might helpfully understand that faith and the Holy Spirit are different sides of the same coin. The Holy Spirit enables our faith. God, in an unseen sovereign mercy, does a, a full heart transplant, as Ezekiel 36 says, taking out our heart of stone, placing in a heart of flesh, guided by the Spirit, we might say. Perhaps you didn't feel it. Uh, when you were a child and you prayed the sinner's prayer in your Sunday school class, or when you heard the evangelist like Billy Graham uh, make the call and you walked the sawdust trail, or 
Perhaps you didn't feel all this happen to you when your friend shared the gospel with you and you were converted and you first believed. But this is what happened spiritually to you. You were united to Christ by the Spirit. Um, it's an organic connection, we've said. Something that is continued. It becomes a very, very part of us, intrinsic to our nature. Jesus in John 15 <clears throat> gives the image. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. We might infer that the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, is perhaps the xylem and phloem that flows between the root and the branches. It's that thing that uh, pumps to us uh, the things needed for life and signs of life and production. The Holy Spirit, you see, brings every benefit of Christ, every nutrient that we could need for growth in our souls to us. <clears throat> see, how it works is that when we believe we are born again, given new life, new hearts by the Holy Spirit, we might say further that we're ingrafted into the true vine. <clears throat> we who on our own, in our flesh, dead branches producing no fruit, are made alive again and grafted into Christ, who is the true vine, who gives us life by His Spirit. Having the lifeblood of Christ, His benefits, our justification, sanctification, adoption, regeneration, election, etc., flowing to us does something um, powerfully and deeply important. Actually, just two things we might summarize. First thing is that it makes us full. More than making us full, it actually makes us overflowing in spirit. It makes us so we're not desperate anymore for filler in life. It satisfies the soul so that I'm not hungering after every other thing that might look pretty. Today, what you used to hunger for, those things you used to feed your soul with, don't do it so much anymore because there is a, a fullness, a satisfaction flowing to us by our faith in Christ. Having the fullness of Christ flowing to us makes us full, number one. Number two, it ought to also make us humble. It ought to make us full and humble because where and how did you get this fullness, Christian? As a gift from Him, of course. It's all of grace, and all you did was believe. And this is different from any other kind of um, pseudo-fullness we might be able to experience as, as people. Perhaps you, uh, you taste a meaningful, full life, and you've done this how? Well, you've accomplished it based upon your performance and how well you've managed your family and your career or your studies or your athletics or whatever part of life. It's, it's something you've done and something you've built and something that breeds pride rather than humility. Being united by the Spirit, receiving the fullness of Christ from Him ought to not only make us full spiritually but also humble spiritually so that we are not those who live lives full of insufferable pride, but rather a beautiful humility, a fullness that comes by grace, mediated by the Holy Spirit. Communion with God in Christ is the only kind that doesn't result, we might say, as we see in verses 19 and 20 and 21, works of the flesh, but rather produces not works, but fruit. That's what it is. It's the intended, redeemed, eternal, Godward part of the heart. That's what the Spirit is. How does it work? Uniting us to Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us and humbles us so that we can produce fruit. 
spiritually. This gets to our third point and our longer point. These next 12 minutes, uh, we hope to cover a lot of ground as we see what it grows, what the Spirit grows. These are these famous verses, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. We'll first need to talk about uh, the whole, really about the whole list, and then we'll break the list down and go through each individually. But there are some things we should notice about the list as a whole. The first thing we should notice as we look at the list is that it's not plural. It's not plural. It does not say the fruits of the Spirit are, but rather if you notice in verse 22, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is. Some commentators point out that in not being plural, it's really a cluster or a collective or perhaps a a diamond with many facets that can be appreciated one at a time. And in not being plural, we should note from the beginning that what is meant here is not something that you can have one of but not another. No, it's not plural. It's symmetrical. Symmetrical. That is, there is no having one of the fruit devoid of the others. We might perhaps be tempted to look at this list and grade ourselves, saying, oh, I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Or as I did as a young boy, saying, I got eight licked, but the last one, self-control, you know, if I just had that, I'd really be a, a full Christian. I'd be doing pretty well. No, it'd be a very shallow way of understanding this list. There is no self-control truly without a true love of God and neighbor. That is what, in fact, uh, the, as we'll see, defines the rest of these other fruits. Or what goodness is, or patience is, kindness is, depends on what love, joy, and peace are and how they relate to God. There is no one of them, I would argue, that we can understand or fully possess disconnected from the rest. Otherwise, we might have um, uh, very easily misunderstood fruits. So, we might think that uh, it's this person you know, it's just their personality to be kind or gentle or humble, perhaps, or being nice. So, how do you know they're not simply um, being manipulative rather than fully loving? No, as we will see, they are not plural, but rather symmetrical. They grow up together. And thirdly, not only plural, not plural, but symmetrical and actual. That is, um, this list is pointing to the real thing. Uh, counterfeits abound. Indeed, as we, as we address each of the fruits in a few moments, I'll try to list out with it the counterfeit that looks so much like the real thing. No, uh, these are not plastic or porcelain fruit that we would hang on our Christmas trees. These are the real, spirit-wrought, God-honoring fruit of the Spirit we ought not to confuse. Not plural, but symmetrical, actual, and importantly, we should notice that they're also internal. These are not actions so much as attitudes. The fruit of the Spirit is not almsgiving. It's not church attendance. It's not knowing lots of theology. These fruit are not gifts of the Spirit, like tongues or teaching or serving or really hardly any external thing at all. They are indeed internal dispositions wrought by God. We all too easily confuse um, busyness for godliness or attendance for holiness. It's all too easy to, to look to the evangelist who is the great gifted preacher who really doesn't have to have internally any of the fruit of the Spirit at work in him. 
We ought not to confuse the two things. Not plural, but symmetrical, actual, internal, and also gradual. Gradual. Even as we evaluate our spiritual fruit, it can be rather discouraging. But built into this metaphor of fruit um, ought to be some encouragement for us. We all perhaps know someone who, in one way or another, was, might say, converted right out of the gutter. And the moment they believed, they didn't struggle with alcohol anymore, they didn't struggle with cursing anymore. No, they were like a totally different person. And praise God for, for that. But for many of us, our struggles against our flesh will be more three steps forward, two steps back. No, true growth in the Spirit is growth that's often gradual and imperceptible. Indeed, my children are going so fast, uh, so fast that some of them I can hardly hold anymore. Uh, and yet to sit them down and watch them at my table, I cannot see the growth happening instant by instant. So it is with the Christian. Our growth is often invisible to the eye. Indeed, as long as far as we want to also be uh, seeing internal growth. These fruit are not plural, but symmetrical, actual, internal, gradual. And lastly, you might say these fruits are dual. And what I mean is, um, well, I, I was speaking to a young man a few weeks ago, newly converted, on fire for Christ, who is convinced that all salvation is of God, that we really do nothing. We really do nothing in our Christian life. It's you just have to let God do it for you and in you. And of course, there's an element of truth to that. We are passive in our regeneration, in our election, in our uh, justification. He does it. And yet, in our sanctification, there is a distinction to make, that we are involved. Our wills are, are a part of it. Indeed, verse 25, where it kind of summarizes the section, sets it down nicely. In verse 25, in the first half, it says, if we live by the Spirit, that is passive, you know, you're not actively living so much. Living is something you're doing without really trying to do. But then he follows it up. It's not only passive, this spirit at work in you, it's also active. He says further, um, verse 25, let us also keep in step with the spirit. That is, it's followed up by a command to activity. So is it passive or active? Well, no, it's really both. It's dual. Our growth becomes both actively and passively. It's a certain passivity that takes great activity, a certain being that, become, that demands a great effort of becoming. So that the fruit of the Spirit as a whole, we see not plural, but symmetrical, actual, internal, gradual, and dual, but also briefly, each of these fruit of the Spirit are worth our brief uh, examination. Uh, I think the list of nine breaks nicely into three sets of three, happy for all preachers, whoever preached through this, to have three groupings of three. Um, the first three, love, joy, peace, I think are helpfully uh, summarized by the Godward self in relation to God. The second three, patience, kindness, goodness, we see manifested in relation to others. And the third three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, might say in relation to the, the, the self, uh, selfward. Um, this might be slightly artificial, uh, I think it, there's a helpful um, flow to this that I think Paul gives us in this order. So, we'll first look at love, joy, and peace. 
as fruit. These are the result of our hearts being steered by the Spirit in, our God, in a God-centered direction. And of course, love is the first fruit for a reason. It is primary. It's the summation of the law of God, even as he says in verse 14. Indeed, it's not only the summation of the law, it's the summation of the character of God. 1 John 4, 7, God is love. And as a fruit of the Spirit, we might define it as the self-giving affection for the other, a self-giving affection for the other, a self-giving affection that only truly exists when you're not trying to get something from the other person, because that's the obvious counterfeit, perhaps, those actions that might look like love, but they're really for the boomerang effect, for the benefit that you would get out of it. You know, it's the temptation to get your wives flowers and chocolates with an agenda, or it's the, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the manipulation that might come with doing your neighbor a favor rather than giving unto their own good or serving God unto His own glory, not so that He'll bless me and work for me. Now, all good deeds done in the name of love that come with concomitant expectations are not acts of love, but rather, of course, self-aggrandizement. True love only flows out of us when we don't need a return. True love only flows out of us when we don't need a return. And the only way we don't need the return is if we are united to the Almighty God, who is Himself love and the source of love and can fill our hearts with the love of God so that we might give without concern of our return. All acts of love, other acts of love, are tainted by a selfish motive of course, the opposite of love is more obvious. It's uh, seeking the pain of others rather than the good. It's a hatred and a malice. The second fruit, joy. Joy is that fruit of the Spirit that is definitionally Godward, a heart turned towards God, looking to Him for joy rather than any other thing will indeed, 1 Peter 1.8, be a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. A true joy is an unquenchable joy. The, the real thing is not the counterfeit thing, which is, you know, is it happiness based upon circumstances. Whether your team's doing good or bad, uh, whether your career's going well or not, it's really based upon performance. But joy, joy is hidden and is downstream of God, God who is the eternally blessed God, who must be happy, who is in control of all things, He who is perfect and never changing. True joy same with true love, only ever comes downstream of God. Of course, the opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair. But true joy that comes from God makes Paul's instruction in Romans 5 to rejoice in our sufferings only possible as it's a fruit of the Spirit, downstream of Christ. Thirdly, peace. Peace comes as a fruit. When you know that everything is how it's supposed to be. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. The ancient Hebrew word, an acknowledgement of the oughtness of things, everything in its place. And this kind of peace that's the fruit of the Spirit is only can ever come downstream of the knowledge of God who is in control of all things, who's providentially, sovereignly powerful over all things. There is not a speck of dust in my laundry room outside of the knowledge and intention and will of God. Of course, peace is counterfeit, is apathy or indifference. Dr. Keller is very helpful in these counterfeits in thinking through the false fruit. 
But its opposite is, of course, anxiety or fear or worry, which as a minister to people in their 20s is by far the most common complaint about anxiety. We live in an anxious age, and if you want peace, where do you find it? Only downstream of Christ, only a peace, a shalom, a knowledge of the providence and sovereignty of God that everything is how He intended to be only comes from Him. The first three are a direct result of a heart turned Godward by the Spirit. The second three of a heart turned Godward as it interacts with others, as it spills out to those around us. The first is patience. Of course, patience is the result of having from God all that you need and seeing other people as no threat to what you need. Of course, we lose our patience uh, when we're being prevented from getting what we want. If you already have all you need in time and eternity from God, everything else can be dealt with patiently. I don't need to blow up on my kids because I have an inner peace from God. I don't need to fall into road rage because if I don't get there on time, God will still things, work things together for good. Of course, the opposite of peace is resentment towards God and others, and the counterfeit is, again, a kind of apathy. Next fruit is kindness. True kindness, uh, we might distinct clearly as a kind of love. Uh, true kindness is not giving money to the homeless people on the street so that your girlfriend will see it and think better of you. No, kindness counterfeit is the same as love's counterfeit. It's manipulation, gifts with strings attached or given for the wrong reasons. So often we give or act kindly uh, to soothe my own conscience, or we do something to virtue signal and to post it on social media. So think, people will think better of I. But the real thing downstream of God in our life is love applied to other people in that way that God gives it. Kindness is love applied to other people as God gives it freely, abundantly, needing nothing in return. Of course, kindness opposite is envy or ill will for others. Next fruit is goodness. Goodness is that which comes from God in our lives, making us morally upright, people of integrity, in whom there is no guile, no deceit. The opposite is hypocrisy. Its counterfeit is a shallow niceness. But a pure-hearted trustworthiness is truly a gift from God. Faithfulness. This comes from God and is seen in our own person as a kind of reliability. It's a loyalty or a moral courage a one who is not swayed by the wind of change. It's the, the opposite would be the opportunist, one who's ready to uh, do whatever works at the time for me. The biblical example, of course, is Stephen, who takes the stones thrown at him, undaunted in the face of his circumstances. He is faithful even unto death. Gentleness. Gentleness uh, perhaps is a misnomer in English. The commentators argue about it quite a bit but I think best described as a kind of humility or self-forgetfulness. It's the opposite of a self-promoting attitude. It's truly meekness. It's what John the Baptist exemplifies when he says, he must increase and I must decrease, showing the meekness or gentleness of spirit. And then finally, self-control. It's what comes to us when we are content in God. And we no longer live impulse to impulse, but we have a spiritual awareness and strength and having our roots drawing upon God's sufficiency for our souls. I'm four minutes over, and I apologize.
we have to see what it is. It is the Spirit, the God Word heart as intended, redeemed, and eternally so. How it works, uniting us to Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us and humbles us so that we can produce fruit. And what it works, not plural, symmetrical, actual, but it's not plural, but symmetrical, actual, internal, gradual, and dual. It's love, joy, and peace with God. Patience, kindness, and goodness before others. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in ourselves. Understanding this spirit, what it is, how it works, it's an essential part of a Christian psychological framework, but more importantly, it's a great reason why you ought to be a Christian today. It's very possible to work all your life and enjoy everything the world has to offer, all the power and money and prestige, and to have none of these fruit, but to continually experience the works of the flesh. No, we say often around here that a a faith that does not change you is a faith that does not save you. Indeed, these fruit are an essential part of the Christian life. There is no true Christian who is not in some way or uh, somehow growing in these fruit of the Spirit. No, you could be uh, the poorest man on earth, but have these and be rich. You could be the richest man on earth and have none of these and be desperately poor. You ought to become a Christian today so that you might bear these in your lives, unbound by circumstances, a true freedom in Christ so we have all we could ever need from Him, through Him, and to Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that You give us Your Spirit and power, that You do not leave us into our own devices, going from one thing to the next, Indeed, a a captive, a prisoner to our own flesh, our own moment-by-moment impulses and wants and desires, but that in Christ we can be set free and have true self-control, have true goodness, love, joy, and peace. Help us, O Lord, to grow in them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.